Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each week, we interview a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. Okay, welcome everybody. Mark Stoll is a professor of environmental and religious history at Texas Tech University, where he also serves as director of environmental studies. He has a bachelor's degree in history and German from Rice and a PhD in history from the University of Texas at Austin. And we'll probably talk about the gap between those two things at some point in this session. Stoll has written two books about the American environmental movement's significant religious influences, which is something we have not talked about at all uh, in the course of this podcast. Those books are Protestantism, Capitalism, and Nature in America, and Inherit the Holy Mountain, Religion and the Rise of American Environmentalism, published in 1997 and 2015, respectively. We got him here, not just because of that, but catalyzed in part by his newest book, which was published last year, Profit and Environmental History, published in 2022 by Polity Books, and we encourage you to get it and read it. It's an amazing read. It is an environmental history of capitalism and has been described by such figures as Bill McKibben and Catherine Hayhoe as a must-read outlining the central tale of the human story. So, Mark, to kick us off, can you walk us through your life and career? How did you end up as a historian of religion and the environment? So, I guess I was born in Texas, which is where I am now, but I didn't intend to come back. And I left, I was pretty young, so I've lived in Muskogee, Oklahoma, so I'm milky from Muskogee, if you know more, I'm a haggard. <laughs> then I uh, to Kansas, a suburb of St. Louis, and then went to Rice University, as you said, and then a friend of mine had, was living in the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. And when I graduated, and I did not have a, a job in, lined up, so he said, do you want to come out and live in the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco for a summer? And I was like, well, of course. Who wouldn't want to do that? So, uh, right. But uh, I ended up being in the Bay Area for 10 years. Oh, wow. Ten, you know, Bay Area is, uh, San Francisco Bay Area is addicting, and it's a wonderful place. Yes. And, of course, it's changed dramatically since then. But at some point, I just decided I really, my mother was right. I should go back to grad school. <laughs> and I ended up in, in history as uh, was my major. At the time, you know, I had a religious upbringing. did not make me religious, but I am did inform me a lot about religion. I uh, grew up very, you know, absorbed a lot from it, kind of intellectually, and it left me with a fascination with religion. So wherever I've gone, I've visited holy sites and talked with people. And so that that kind of the religious history kind of comes naturally. But I also, growing up, you know, in the 60s, I was born in 1954, and we would, you know, go to national parks as a family vacation and camping, and my dad would take me hunting. He was a farm boy from Kansas. Okay. Take me hunting with him and fishing. He loved both of those. And so I just sort of naturally acquired uh, an interest in the environment. And, of course, it was the 60s, and, and I was in ninth grade when Earth Day happened. Right. So I'm just of that generation that get kind of caught up in all of that. And, uh, and so, you know, I joined the Sierra Club in 1981. When I got to graduate school, I was looking for a topic to write a dissertation about, and I had been reading biographies of John Muir, who I knew through his writings, living in California, uh, read a biography, and I was interested in the fact that he also had a religious upbringing, although he was not, you know, was not a churchgoer as an adult, 
And then he's become this environmental icon. So this hero, the received wisdom at the time was that these two things were mutually exclusive. Uh, the, the Lynn White thesis of 1967 had said that Christianity was responsible for the environmental crisis because it you know, gave us dominion over the earth and it took the spirits and so on out of natural things and made it just a thing to use. And so he wrote a, an essay that's been very famous and influential in the environmental movement, even still today, people are reading it. And I thought that that is wrong. My example showed that, that was, there's, there's a connection. And that the example of John Mueller also, which I got to identify with, his kind of journey from a religious upbringing out of it, and then to become really interested in protecting nature, seemed to something that I could identify with. So I decided to investigate why that was true and how they were related, looking for continuities rather than, I mean, I know, anybody who's had a religious upbringing knows you do not, you cannot get rid of that, that inner Catholic thing, that inner Presbyterian, that inner Jew, that whatever it may be, if you've had a religious upbringing, that stays with you and shapes your life and the way you look at things, even if you're becoming nothing or become, you know, convert to Buddhism or, or some other religion, um, become an evangelical, you still have that way of viewing and seeing the world that you had before. That led to my first two books, which were looking at how your religious upbringing shapes the way you think about nature and the environment as an adult. I particularly looked at, in the last book, at environmentalists in particular, kind of tracing back their religious origins. And practically all of the leading major significant environmental figures that you could think of had a religious upbringing historically. But it's really mm-hmm. interesting from one perspective, but the second perspective was really interesting was that they over and over and over and over again, all were coming from the same denominations, which is <laughs> odd to say the least. And also odd that nobody else had noticed this. I thought, how can this, you know, once you see it, it's like in plain sight and such a strange thing that needed to be explained. I was like, why hadn't anybody else done this? So, my last book in particular wants to look, thinks about the history of the environmental movement in terms of the religious upbringing of the people that created it, formed it, led it on the 19th century, the first half of the 20th century, and then really since 1970. Because in each of these three time periods, it was a different set of denominations that was dominant. Very interesting. So you can see a transition in the things that are most important to environmentalists at the time, which is also changes over time. But, but that reflects the way you see society, the way you morally frame things. Well, you know, I, I do want to get to profit, but this is just such an interesting thread. So I'm just going to ask a quick follow-up question. Right. I mean, the book, the last book, Inherit the Holy Mountain, is, is about religion, presumably primarily about various forms of Christianity and American environmentalism. In that exploration, maybe in the research, maybe in conversations, did you by any chance explore the influence of other religions in other geographic settings, or is that just a whole topic to its own, you know, Hinduism and Indian environmentalism to pick to pick one proxy? I have not really delved into 
Indian environmentalism. It is different, of course, uh, in very many ways. And of course, even just the setting of India uh, and its environmental problems are rather different than than ours. But uh, I have done Europe uh, to a degree. And and you say Christian, yeah, it's mainly Christian because Christians have practically everybody you can think of until the last 30 years or so that's a leader of the environmental movement, a major figure has been uh, Christian. Until really the 70s, they were all Protestant. Right. That's really interesting. So, uh, so since that, we have more Jews that are prominent, right. quite a few that you could name, and Catholics. And uh, the traditional Protestants have vanished, really, which is curious. And you can also see that you know, in liberalism in general in America. If you just look at the leading members in Congress on the Democratic Party, whether it's Pelosi or Schumer or whatever, it's all Jews and Catholics. Fascinating. Which is, I think there's another book to be written about that, which possibly would be my next project. Or, or perhaps a thesis for one of your grad students one day. <laughs> Let's switch to profit because I, I, we will come back and talk to you about religion and the environment. I, and maybe we should have started with that topic, but we'll, we'll come back to it. Well, I was afraid we, we, we could we would, could end up spending half our time just talking about we, that. This is uh, we let us let us declare it now. This will be a two part series. We'll talk today about profit a little bit. So the book Profit more explicitly brings in capitalism than than the book before it, which was Inherit the Holy Mountain. What were your intentions in writing it? And can you, for readers who have not read the book, can you give them sort of a Cliff Notes version of the thesis before we start diving deeper. Sure. Um, well, of course, capitalism is in the title of my first book. Right. And, True. Which may be the reason, I don't really know, the reason why the publisher at Polity approached me about writing an environmental history of capitalism. So I had not actually thought that I'm that to write such a book. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry that I didn't think of it because it's such a wonderful topic. It is. And after I just sort of got over my shock of the audacity of such a topic, <laughs> environmental history of capitalism in one volume. I mean, you could write nine volumes on that, right? right. So I was like, and then why me? <laughs> I could see religion maybe, but uh, somebody out of the blue writing me about to, to write this topic. But the more I thought about it, it was like, I very quickly realized I have a lot to say about that topic. I'd love to write about this. And so it was, it was a really fun project. Got it. And the Note version, I guess the, what uh, I would want to emphasize is that, you know, capitalism is difficult to assign a, an origin point to capitalism. Every time that you say, oh, well, it started with the British in, or the English in 18th century or something, it's like, well, you can find the Dutch were doing that 200 years yeah. earlier the exact same thing, you know, and you just keep leapfrogging back that same way until it's, you just keep moving back into antiquity, which I, you know, realize that it grows up with us kind of organically and evolves as humans and culture evolves, which is why it's so, I think, deep rooted and very difficult to even conceive of eliminating. You get lots of people who are like, oh, we have to come up with an alternative capitalism. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> you're not the first to try to do that. It's been tried many times before, and it keeps coming back. It's like, you know, 
lay a sidewalk down and capitalism comes back up through it like a weed, right. you know, it's there. So I think that really we have to figure out how to live with it. Got it. I, I'm going to come back to one or two of these things in a second, but I, I want to begin asking some more in-depth questions. So the book does an amazing job of, I mean, almost by definition, the environmental costs of technological developments that in large part have arisen from the forces of capitalism. You know, these costs are often obscured or out of sight for the public. Was that a difficult topic to research? I mean, you know, was this something that was challenging from an archival source standpoint? (laughs) It really wasn't because I've been interested in environmentalism since Earth Day number one. (laughs) And, you know, which is a long time ago now, it's hard to believe. And, of course, for 35 years, I've been an environmental historian. And so, uh, and I read widely far beyond just my historical sources. I, I just sort of kept, kept this kind of mental catalog of, of these things. And so I knew what topics I needed to talk about and what I wanted to talk about. And you know, I have to do, go back and dig up the articles again that I had seen or go back and, and find the details about what was in my mind. But it's not hard. You know, the hardest part really is, is writing it. Right. And putting it into a a readable format that's reasonably comprehensive, but without just, I mean, you can imagine this could easily be 500 pages, in which case my publisher like, no, no, we can't do that. (laughs) So I'm going to now touch on a topic that is very near and dear to us at Amasia, which is the notion that you... Ultimately, if you're thinking clearly, which not many of us are, you kind of have to get to the idea of reducing consumption. And so I want to hone in on one particular turning point you mentioned in the book, you know, around the turn of the century when the limits to growth were no longer our ability to produce goods and services within, within reason, but our capacity for consumption. And, you know, you tack on something we were talking about before we started, which is the explosion in population you detail in the book strategies businesses and governments use to generate desire to keep that growth going. And, you know, a lot of the venture capital discourse is around direct-to-consumer businesses. And, you know, you sort of begin peeling the onion a little bit and you realize, you know, this is all part of this enormous trend. And it's clear now that we can't consume at the rate we do without exceeding planetary limits. But in your conclusion, you also suggest that we can't can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak. And I especially love this expression, which I intend shamelessly using, and as long as I remember to attribute it to you, which is, like a shark, consumer capitalism must keep moving to live, which is a great metaphor slash image and completely frightening. So the question is, because we expect you to have all the answers. The question is, what can we do? Yeah, that's, that is the question. And the problem is that, as you mentioned, at the turn of the 20th century, we had to move. I mean, one of the problems with all of the, the industrial capitalism of the 19th century is how often it collapsed. Or there's one, you know, every, at least every 10 years, you've got a, a major depression. And it's, had the problem that it was too good at producing things. Right. And that's what industrial capitalism, it's, it's genius. Right. It's, it's, let's produce things cheaply and lots of it. Great. Okay. 
then you saturate the market. What do you do now? So, yeah, the 20th century question is how do we expand the market continuously to absorb all this stuff we're making? So, yeah, to promote consumption is the goal of capitalism in the 20th century. And they've gotten super good at right. it. Just, you know, as you say, frighteningly good at it. And we, and we are, it's, it's part of our lives, our everyday moment, waking moment, there's consumption involved. And so the problem is that if you stop consuming, everything stops. Right. And we just spiral down. We almost did that in 2008. Right. It was, yep. We almost fell off the cliff. Right. We certainly did that in 1929. Yep. And so when people is like, oh, let's um, degrowth and things like that, it's like, how are you going to do no. that? <sighs> how can you stop the consumption without everything stopping? Because it, it, it's like the shark. <laughs> the shark will die. The shark will die. If it can't, in, and, can't keep and going. This, in, in this instance, the shark will die implies a billion human beings could die. Yeah. And, you know, and when we had the 30s with the last total collapse, you've got poverty and desperation and malnutrition and starvation and social dislocation and migration of people and political extremism. And this is what you're going to have to deal with if everything just collapses. Right. So really, we've got to keep that shark moving. And as you say, how do we do that? And that is the challenge. I mean, I do not profess to have come up with the answers, but it seems to me there are promising movements in the direction of consuming without consuming stuff. Yep. Oh, there was a great interview with this executive with Ikea about half a dozen years ago that I quote that he says, you know, Ikea, which is <laughs> the purveyor of stuff, right. right? And cheap stuff that we have to keep, keep replacing. It's not meant to be for the ages. No. It's meant to fall apart and be replaced the soul of consumerism. And he was saying, you know, Ikea has to prepare for the day when you have all the stuff you want. And he called it peak stuff. Right. So we can hope that we can reach peak stuff and buy things that maybe are more, a lot of people now are buying things that are like experiences right. or prepackaged quote unquote adventures. It's not an adventure if somebody's packaging it for you, but people want to have these adventures. One of our, and it does involve using some, you know, fossil fuels and some, but it's not like buying stuff. Um, well, and we also have a lot of stuff online that we can stream movies, we can do video games, we can. All of this is very low in its consumption of both energy and resources. I don't want to propose everybody sit around and do video games all day. Why not? Why not? There are many people would love to, I'm sure. But it's more that this is sort of perhaps movement in the right direction. I want to just mention things like that. We need to, uh, I want to just mention, promote. I just want to mention two yeah. things. One, recently we interviewed, and we should share it with you, Roland Gayer, who made sort of a very similar point, defined it a little differently. His notion was we should spend more, much more on services, which are not exploitative of the planet. And the example used is, you know, if you want to go get your haircut every week, provided the, your barber is not living in a different state that you have to drive to, you know, that's an example of one versus the other. On your other point, I do want to say at my age, I just got myself an Xbox. 
So I, in fact, intend to play video games nonstop for the rest of the year. <laughs> I want to move us along here to our to our last question, which is, which is, I think, you know, something that's near and dear to me is people to emulate, people to model after, or people to just think about. And you profile many important figures in the environmental preservation movement in the book and in your prior books, including one of our favorites, who is Javon's. And this may be the first time I've actually pronounced that name out loud. So I hope I got it. <laughs> you will now tell me it's Jevons and then I'll. I, yeah, All right. So we'll call him Jevons. Are there any particular uh, figures who especially resonate with you as you did your research? Well, they all do. <laughs> You're allowed more than one. Okay. Well, Jevons is, is great, but I don't know that he needs to be resurrected because he's already fairly well known, yes. especially he's a, a figure in energy economics. Um, and he's has become relevant again. I think that a person who is neglected is someone who I profile, profile near the end, which is Barbara Ward. And her, that she was very prominent at one time and everywhere is, you know, everywhere from Vatican II advising people at the first Earth Summit in 1973 in Stockholm. She's not the chair of these things, but she's extremely active behind the, behind the scenes okay. and forcing people to think about poverty in you know, the global south, what they call the third world back then, and environmental issues in those places. And so I think that she is kind of the forerunner of our current interest in environmental justice and these kinds of issues and thinking more globally than say Rachel Carson right. or, or Jevons who was only thinking about England. Right. So Barbara Ward, let's, let's rediscover. Let us, I, I'm right after this podcast is done. I will be reading up on Barbara Ward. Um, and I hope many of our listeners will as well. You know, we're going to wrap this up here, Mark, but I can, I just want to tell you, we'll be back very soon to talk about religion more in more detail. This has been wonderful. These are themes we are deeply interested in and through us, our audience. And thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for listening. Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas. And visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information.